Welcome to episode three of Sound Stories, a Seattle soccer podcast from 710 ESPN Seattle. I'm your host, Spencer Davis, and our guest this week is Frank McDonald, Seattle soccer historian, writer, and former communication director for the Seattle Sounders. I'll be talking to Frank about the early days of the Sounders, what Brian Schmetzer was like as a player, and why soccer culture is so unique in the Pacific Northwest. All right, Frank, thanks for thanks for coming on. Um, so first, let's just talk about you first getting involved with so- with soccer in Seattle and the Sounders and just kind of the early days for you. I would say my involvement actually starts about 90 miles from here and not in Seattle because I grew up in a in the halfway point between Seattle and Portland, which is Centralia, and we didn't have soccer. No one, no one to my knowledge, played soccer, but I heard uh, one of the first broadcasts of the original Sounders. Uh, it was on uh, Mother's Day, I believe, of 74, and uh, <laughs> before my dad could turn the, the dial, because he wasn't so much of a soccer fan, I could hear the uh, the Sounders playing Denver in the first home game, and you could hear the roar of the crowd. And when you're a kid and you're growing up in the 70s when not everything's on television, um, uh, hearing crowd noise is something that kind of uh, sends a shiver up your up your spine if you're a sports fan. And and I thought, what is this game? Um, how did they? You know, I'd read about some of these strange named players from Europe that had comprised that first mm-hmm. team, and I, I just had a, a huge curiosity of what it was going to be like. Uh, why did the people enjoy it? And I think that fascination has has carried me over uh, the the 40-some-odd years since, since then, um, and I remain one that wants to um, grow the game, enjoy the game, help others enjoy the game, introduce them to soccer, uh, and really celebrate where we've come from and what might be possible. What was the first game you attended in person? <laughs> well, I, I was not of age, and, and with 90 miles, my dad sure wasn't going to take me. Uh, um, he took me to Husky games and so on, but it was uh, my sister drove me up uh, with an exchange student from Sweden and and a high school uh, mate of mine, and we came up to the uh, watch the Sounders and the LA Aztecs a year later in '75, and we had obstructed seats at uh, at Memorial, but it was sold out. You know, all the games were sold out back then, and uh, we lost uh, in a shootout. It was a one-one tie, and and we lost uh, that game. And that was the only game I got to until I turned 16. And then, you know, the road opened up to me. I got to borrow the car. And I would make, um, I probably made over 30 trips um, between uh, 76 and uh, when I started attending the U in 78 of driving up and down the freeway in the evening, uh, going to games in the kingdom. Um, That was the great thing about the kingdom was that was the, the tall and short of it is a there's a lot of seats so you can show up and and find one uh and uh but at least you knew uh in advance that you could get into the game whereas memorial it was a it was a very tough ticket back in the day yeah yeah it sounds like an intense atmosphere and stuff too yeah it was and i you know i didn't know any better the kingdom um was fascinating just from its sheer uh size and uh and i'm sure that was a lot of the attraction, but, uh, you know, the Sounders were averaging, you know, 20, 23,000 fans there, uh, through the years. And it was, 
it was just exciting. It was something new. It was something, you know, um, generations now, um, you, you know, younger generations are doing things their parents didn't do. And I felt uh, I kind of wanted to break out and do uh, things that were different. I had played football. I had played basketball. Um, and this was just kind of my thing uh, where I could get into it. And um, so even when I was a, a, a senior in high school, I helped uh, – somehow convinced the Sounders to come uh, uh, to send some players down for a school assembly. And <laughs> I still look at that as like, uh, what were they thinking? Because I've talked to some of them since. But they sent four Sounders down, not not the, not the end of the bench guys. They sent four starters down um, to do an assembly. And I was just overjoyed. I mean, you know, the big team was coming into Centralia of all places. And I really considered a feather in, uh, in the cap at that time. Wow. So what was, what was the first time you played soccer? Did you get to play in high school at all or was it later? Well, back then it was kind of an experimental game that you would get to play. Uh, you know, you'd try everything once in PE back then. And I'm sure along with, I probably played uh, lacrosse and you know you, you you had a sampling of everything so we I can remember the first soccer game was something about a PE class in junior high and and I can remember this one guy he was so confident and uh, he would he could get the ball up uh, and he would bounce it back and forth between the inside of each forearm and I'm going like hey you can't do that <laughs> and he goes no I'm not using my hands and then you know we're all kind of dumbstruck because you didn't know enough yeah. about the game and you'd have to go home and say oh yeah no hands but wait a minute and then but at mm -hmm. anyway you know that's what i can remember as my first yeah. couple of games we founded a club um in 76 uh at the school and um it was just i had would worked on a story uh that appeared in the times last month about uh Sharon McMurtry, and I'll go off just to, for a moment here, mm -hmm. but Sharon McMurtry was the first U.S. soccer female player of the year. She came from uh, Inglemore High here. Uh, but her story, uh, when I was talking to her earlier this summer, was that when she started playing at Inglemore, there was only, uh, and it was 1976, the same year we're starting soccer in Centralia, there was no girls' team. So she played mm -hmm. on the boys' team with her brother, uh, and that got me to thinking of just what was it like? So I found my old annual and I looked and we had three or four girls on the Centralia team back then. So it wasn't mm -hmm. unheard of. Um, but I had forgotten that until she brought it up as being, uh, her experience. Um, so that was when we played, I played on a men's league team, uh, because there wasn't really a high school varsity. Um, and I, I played all through, uh, college. I was cut mercifully by the University of Washington, um, but then played men's league for quite a while until uh, had kids. And then uh, the late nights of in Maple Valley at nine o'clock kickoff uh, just wasn't for me anymore. Yeah. So you were playing all that time into college, out of college. Did you, were you involved with soccer in Seattle in any other way at that time? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think the, the greatest thing uh, I was I benefited from uh, my parents, uh, so I would have been a junior, no, a sophomore at the UW, and uh, my parents uh, gave me as a, a Christmas gift season tickets to the 1980 
Sounders season, which right now, um, if I could give anybody an experience of watching soccer uh, of all time, you would want a season ticket to watch the 1980 Sounders. Why? Um, because that was the most exciting, most successful, at least in terms of a league season, uh, this area has ever seen. They won, um, back then they didn't have draws, but anyway, the, their mm. final record was 25-7, and seven, which was a, a record for the North American Soccer League. They scored goals in bunches. Um, it was just a tremendously entertaining team, and they were all, for the most part, first division um, England players. Mm. There were, uh, we had a, a Canadian center back. He was on the Canadian national team, Ian Bridge. We had uh, an American, Mark Peterson, who played up front. And back then, you only had to play uh, three Americans or Canadians. Um, but even they were good. They were national team caliber. And then it was just a glorious team to watch. That was Alan Hinton's first team when he arrived in Seattle. And he, they just played a very attacking mode. They had uh, young players from the surrounding area. Uh, they really hit on all the buttons. And it was uh, just so so much fun to watch. And when you see the, the video, uh, the grainy video images today, it still holds, uh, holds its own. Um, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's a different game. It's not as physical maybe as it was back then, but it is tremendously entertaining and a, and a very high technical caliber. And that's mm -hmm. when, you know, that was that, that was that summer, 1980, that they signed Brian Schmetzer. So, you know, everything kind of rolls <laughs> together. And, and so Brian would very much remember all this as well. Yeah. Would you say that that year um, prior to the MLS era was the, the peak of Sounders soccer? Yeah, this is this takes some convincing <laughs> of 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 uh, current fans who 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 don't uh, go back that far. But um, when we we're uh, working on uh, creating a uh, 40th anniversary year team a couple of years ago, and I kind of did this on my own. I went rogue a little bit. I know the Sounders did their version of it. But I went back and I interviewed all the coaches of the Sounders back in that time. Mm -hmm. John Best, Jimmy Gabriel, Allen, uh, Lori Calloway. And so we went through each era of, of professional soccer here in Seattle. And, and I got the coaches to kind of compile what would be the, the best 11 from that era. Um, and, then, uh, and then I think someone, uh, the Sounders did a, an mm -hmm. all-inclusive over all those eras. And I, vo I voted on that team and I... I think I might have shared it on Twitter who I voted for, and they're saying like, "No, come on! <laughs> all the all the current guys are better than the than those old 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 fogies mm -hmm. that that played in the '80s." And I'm saying, "No, you don't you don't get it." Is you know, you know, we think of Dempsey um, or anybody that played in in uh, one of the top five European leagues as being the uh, the top of the pinnacle. Well. You know, all credit due to, to Dempsey, but the entire, as I said, the entire teams back mm -hmm. then of the Sounders had all played first division. Um, uh, Peterson might have been in a couple more years if the NASL had stayed alive and the Sounders had stayed alive. He probably would have at least gotten a sniff over there. Um, Ian Bridge did play in Switzerland, I think, after the Sounders folded. So it was a it was a mm -hmm. remarkable team. Um, and the quality was, was very high. Um, I should say, you asked me, how did I get involved in Seattle soccer? So out of, I, I was, 
it wasn't enough for me to to have that season ticket in 80. So in 81, I put in for an internship with the Sounders. By 82, I was uh, graduated and they hired me at the Sounders um, and so on and so forth between either covering them for Soccer America, um, which was the Bible of the sport for, for, for decades, uh, working at Seattle Pacific, working again with MLS Sounders, you know, in their first three, four years on staff, mm-hmm. um, have my life, uh, to my family's, uh, <laughs> am- amusement. Uh, I've always, uh, kind of, uh, weave my life around soccer here. Yeah. And so what was your first job, uh, after graduating with the Sounders, you had the internship first and then you got full time job. I, as luck would have about three days after, I graduated. Uh, there was a re- reorganization. There was a new general manager, uh, John Best, the original coach, came back as general manager. I had been interning, and one day I walked in as an intern and walked out as the assistant PR director and and editor of publications. And so, you know, woohoo! <laughs> I I was over the moon. Yeah. I mean, to you know, to get to work for the team that you just mm-hmm. uh, are fired up to watch. Um, it's <laughs> It was just unfortunate that you know that the league and the Sounders kind of went went down the tubes uh, about two years after that. But um, you know, a great memory. Still have great mm-hmm. friends. Saw a few of them just the other day, um, and I see them all the time. So yeah, it's not a bad memory. Um, it's just it was a starting point. So yeah, how did that feel? Um, not not just as an employee or whatever, but as a fan, as somebody who had seen soccer grow into something great. How did that feel when it? folded um it was it was hard uh but i was optimistic that it would take off again i thought you know if, if we're averaging twenty five thousand fans and not everybody not all the cities in in north america were averaging mm-hmm. that many maybe the cosmos and tampa uh, minnesota for a time um I kind of thought, well, there's there's obviously de- a demand here. We just have to get a, a respectable league. I never, never would have thought it would take uh, the better part of a generation to get back to that point. Um, you know, uh, a year after the Sounders died, uh, FC Seattle started up, which was a for those who not heard of FC Seattle, it was a it was a lot of it was a former um, coach at the Sounders, Jimmy Gabriel, kind of put this team together. Uh, uh, Football Club Seattle, uh, they played at Memorial. And the first year, what they did is they challenged what was left of uh, the NESL. They, they, mm. Their first game was against Vancouver, who was then being coached by Hinton. They played the Cosmos and all their stars. They played uh, So they played four or five games. And then out of that, the following year grew the um, the first league after the NESL folded. And that league is still, if if you trace mm-hmm. the roots of USL, which is you know the second or arguably third third tier yeah. of American <laughs> soccer right now, uh, that league grew into or merged with the USL. So I mean, it's traced its roots all the way back to '85 with FC Seattle. Um, so, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of American soccer history, at least in this modern era, traces its uh, roots to what started in Seattle. And, the, and I should say that FC Seattle team, what they tried to do is realizing they can't afford to import talent from Europe anymore. 
they went with an all local team mm. to challenge these pro teams. And, and so it was a very novel experiment, but really when you see it, that was uh, the first of really is what has become um, all the pro teams now are predominantly, you know, North American. Um, so that is, it, it, it was the starting point for, for that movement. Did you get involved with um, whatever the, the movement was to bring back um, the Sounders for the USL and for that new kind of merged yeah. league? So uh, when the, so FC Seattle lasted till 90 and then mm -hmm. there was nothing there. Well, well there, I shouldn't say that <laughs> there, there was nothing outdoors. There was still indoor soccer in, in Tacoma, but that was even on its last legs in the early nineties. I want to say there was about 18 months there where there was, there was no Tacoma stars. There was no FC Seattle. There was no Seattle sounds. There was nothing. College soccer was the pinnacle around here. Um, so in 94, uh, Washington Youth Soccer is one of the sponsors of a game played in the kingdom. So 94 is the year the World Cup's coming to America. And, geez, uh, the national team probably played 40 friendlies a year because th there was no league to speak of, so they just played a lot of friendlies. So there was this uh, uh, friendly against Russia in the kingdom. And Alexi Lawless mm -hmm. played in that. Chris Henderson played in that. Um, and that, that pulled 43,000, which... Pre-World Cup 94 was a, was a pretty um, uh, substantial audience, yeah. and it, it really took everybody uh, at U.S. soccer. It, it got their uh, attention. Um, so out of that, they said, hey, you guys have got to form a team for this new league that's going to follow the, the 94 World Cup. So immediately after that game, we did form uh, a committee. Um, it was tough because at the same time, Alan Hinton had had the Sounders. He was going to enter them in the new. Um, it was actually the same league that FC Seattle had formed, but it was you could say the USL of the day. It was called the A League. Mm -hmm. The Sounders essentially saved that league from also folding because they came became like the seventh team. Um, so they were trying to start up, and at the same time, we're trying to sell uh, the local public on hey, buy a season ticket. Uh, to a prospective team in MLS two years from now. And so uh, we were doing that, and we got lots of interest. Uh, I think Seattle finished with, like, the third most season ticket deposits of all the teams. Columbus, hmm. believe it or not, was way out in front. Hmm. Um, but we did not get a team that uh, in 96 because we didn't have a suitable playing facility. Uh, and because we didn't really have an owner that, mm. that loved us like Lamar Hunt loved Kansas City or Dallas or Columbus. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, going back to um, first mentioning Brian, Brian Schmetzer, current mm -hmm. Sounders head coach, mm -hmm. uh, what were your first impressions just as a fan of, of him as a player? Well, so he, was, he signed on to the team there in 80. He came uh, right out of Nathan Hale. Um, and back then you kind of associated – players more so with a high school than their club. Uh, Brian had played for um, Lake City Hawks, which even back then everybody was aware of. That was the most uh, accomplished team in, in, for boys in the state to that time. They'd won um, consecutive state titles at every, every age division, sometimes playing up a, a year. And so Brian was in the team. What I, I didn't remember so much about Brian um, 
Uh, he played sparingly in, in 81 and 82. He really got his starting shot in 83, which was the last year of the Sounders, mm. which was unfortunate because everything overshadowed what was going on in the field with just a terrible ownership back then. Mm. And uh, and the crowds just, just uh, growing smaller and smaller by the week. What I knew about Brian was... Uh, I had gone to his parents' soccer shop, which in those days, now it's on Aurora, but in those days it was out in Lake City Way. Mm. And uh, you'd go there. Uh, there were two major soccer shops in town, and uh, there was there was sports, sports specialties over on, uh, I think it was 2nd Avenue in Belltown, and then there was Sport House out in Lake City. So that is more of what I knew about the Schmetzer name mm. uh, than anything. But then with FC Seattle, Brian and his three, or Brian and his two twin brothers, uh, Andy and Walter, Walter Jr., they all played for FC Seattle in 85. And they, so they, you know, in a 4-4-2, they were three people in the midfield. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that was when I first took note of, of how exceptional of a player Brian was. Uh, we played Santos of Brazil, and I think Brian got both the goals, and, mm. and Seattle beat Santos, and and Andy and Walter were had just graduated like a couple weeks before um, uh, high school, so they were um, 17, 18 year old twins, mm -hmm. and they were exceptional as well. But Brian had had a, had a just a craft about him, and and obviously by then he had played three or four years in the pros, mm. and he was. Um, he was just exceptional. One of the, and there's a reason, you know, he was named to the, uh, the, the all-time team of the first 50 years of the state youth soccer association. Mm -hmm. Brian was a special player and you just wonder how great it would have been to have a team back then that has, well, not only Brian, uh, Peterson stock, uh, chance Fry, uh, Bill Crook, Tim Bartrow. There were a lot of great players of that time who some never got to play pro, or they certainly, it was hard, harder to make a living back then. Um, but Washington had a great crop of young talent back then, and Brian, Brian very much among them. When you first um, saw that he had aspirations to be a coach, and when he first uh, started to coach the Sounders, I believe early 2000s? Yeah, 2002. Yeah, what, what were your impressions of that? You know, at that point, I was probably more immersed in coaching my my own son's team. Um, and I was preoccupied, obviously, with my job over at Seattle Pacific. But what I noticed was uh, that first team of his was darn near unbeatable. <laughs> now, it, you know, it wasn't the top tier of American soccer at the time. It, you know, it was, uh, I think it was still called the A-League. It would be called USL soon after that. But that, that Sounders team of Bryan's um, was just a juggernaut. I mean, they hardly, I think they lost maybe a couple games. Um, and you you don't see that um, that often. So you, uh, so you know that there's a character involvement, that Bryan is uh, showing a belief in the players. And so I did, I went out and went to a, a playoff mm -hmm. game that year with my son and um, um they didn't go all the way. They didn't win the cup. They had won the regular season title. Uh, but I could just tell that he had a he had a mind for the game. Um, he uh, he knew 
he believed in his players and I could tell the players knew that they had the confidence of their coach and they played like it. And that's what you want to see out there on mm-hmm. the field. You want to get that vibe. Um, and so it, it doesn't surprise me, um, uh, that, uh, a, that he had a good long run there in the USL. It didn't surprise me. Um, in fact, I was so, I was happy for him to, to become Ziggy's, uh, first assistant. And I was very pleased that, that he is getting this shot that he's getting now to, to take the reins and hold them for the long term. Yeah, and, and what you're saying totally makes sense um, in regard to the style that I've seen from Brian so far. I've had multiple players say he's a player's coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen that again this time around? Yeah, and I, I'm, you know, I, I've talked to Brian um, mostly when, when I was on staff, but uh, I've also talked to people that um, coached him, Alan. Alan was a player's coach, mm-hmm. um, and... And that's not to say Ziggy isn't, but uh, I guess it's it's when a a player comes from a um, or a coach comes from a, a, a an accomplished playing background and then comes in. They they seem like they do uh, have a knack for knowing um, how to uh, get buy-in from their players. Mm. And I you know, so I I know that Brian was he was an assistant with to uh, Fernando Clavijo at, uh, with the Sea Dogs. Um, and I knew that he, uh, again, played under Allen. So I think he takes little bits and pieces, and I think he was always learning. Even when he was with the USL team, he was going to the Combines. Um, I know that's when he first met uh, Ziggy. And I think he's, he was always taking notes, either mentally or scribbling them down. And I think he has always been preparing himself for the next opportunity. Uh, and I, I think that's evident. And so that's why you want someone like that to, to get an opportunity such as this. Yeah, totally. I, I, I've seen much of that uh, from him so far. And the way he gets involved in training sessions, uh, to me, stands out the most that he is in the thick of it, um, knows what it's like to be a player in there and wants to you know, get his players to where they need to be and being right in there is much more effective than for him standing on the sideline and telling them what to do. But no, I've, I've totally seen a lot of that from him. Well, um, now let's, let's transition a little bit and to kind of what I've said is the ethos of this podcast. And I try to get at least one, um, just meaningful, big story, um, from every guest you've told great stories already. Um, but for, for this, is there something personal, a story that's, that means a lot to you, um, it can be anything public, private. It can be a match. It can be meeting a player. Um, is there just a story that stands out to you over the years of Seattle soccer? Well, I think there's there's two stories that uh, stand out to me. One mm-hmm. is the resilience of the fan here in Seattle. And um, uh, there was a long time there where it seemed that Seattle um, – was not getting its uh, opportunity to show just how much it loved the game. I think what you see at, at CenturyLink Field now is a a week-in, week-out reminder of how much people here love this game, have uh, taken it close to their heart. Uh, what What is uh, unfathomable probably to a lot of league execs now is why did we wait um, 
uh, what was it, 13 years of uh, mm-hmm. through MLS to give this city. Um, and so I think the story is of the fan is is that they were always laying um, uh, lying in the grass and they were ready to come out and just loved the game and they would support it. It you just had to bring the right product. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had to show that it was here to stay. Um, and I think what amazed me about uh, that inaugural year and that um, all the things that led up to that first game against New York in 09 was seeing the Seahawks do that. Uh, um, Gary Wright was at the Seahawks and then became the, the senior VP of the, the Sounders there uh, as they're getting started. It was the jolt to the system that were uh, that the Sounders were going to do everything first class mm-hmm. because here they're taking a name that uh, had been associated now with a second division team. Probably fewer and fewer people had remembered that it was a first division team mm-hmm. like it was in, in the 70s and 80s. And so I was thinking like, well, I don't know if the Sounders name is going to ring for these people. But what made the difference uh, besides the, the vote uh, to keep the name, uh, the public vote, was that everything uh, that was done by the club in those first few days was first class. You announced the team at the top of the Columbia Center. You announced the name at the Space Needle. Mm-hmm. For so long, our soccer public almost uh, had to apologize for everything because we were it was a grassroots organization there mm-hmm. from... Uh, and so you were doing things kind of on the cheap, uh, and and here to see people really believing in it, throwing their resources at it, and just committing to we are going to rock this place. And I, I you know, it was Gary, it was Todd Wiki, and that was what I thought. Like, hallelujah! Mm-hmm. I mean, we have waited so long for someone with some substance, some clout. Uh, some power in the market uh, to come alongside this great fan base and really come together. And it just on that that uh, March night um, against New York, you just felt everything come together. You got Casey coming home from Europe. You got this unknown um, guy from Colombia scoring a couple of goals, and the and the place is just rocking. And you just say, "Yes, we fought, we got the chance." They threw the pitch and we hit it out of the park, and we did it as a as a community bonding with the team. And that's that night. Um, I know to a lot of people it was very special. So I think that's that is the story of what everything that led to that first night. Yeah, that's great. Are there um, are there any other matches in the MLS era that stand out to you? Um, in the MLS era, what are some of my favorite games? Um, I would say, you know, actually, I'm going to div- diverge here. That's fine. The greatest match I've ever seen uh, was in was in 1993. Is when I was at SPU. So there is no pro team, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of uh, twists and turns on this. So it's it's Seattle Pacific playing a game clear across the nation uh, in Melbourne, Florida, and uh, Seattle Pacific was a very good team. So. In goal, we had Marcus Hahnemann, who was like a three-time All-American at, at mm-hmm. Seattle Pacific, obviously kind of a Sounders legend and a, and a legend over at Reading and, 
in England. So he's our, our keeper. We've got uh, a bunch of guys that would play a little bit of pro indoor. There's uh, Jason Dunn, who was a record-setting scorer, and he played for the ninety uh, the the A League Sounders later on. Also played for the national team. Mm-hmm. So he's our guy up front. But anyway, we're playing this a semifinal game at the home ground of Florida Tech here in Melbourne, Florida. They had not been beaten all year. They were just routing teams. They had primarily a European team. Uh, um, they could have easily been playing Division One. This is NCAA Division Two, and we're playing the semifinal on their ground, and we're playing it without Hahnemann because he'd been sent off in the quarterfinal mm-hmm. game. Uh, and it is the most back and forth game. It goes, uh, it's three three at the end of regulation, and. Uh, and then Florida Tech goes up five to three, and there's a little over a minute left. And this is an overtime, and you had to play out the overtimes. I think we're in the second overtime at this point. And uh, Travis Cannell, uh, who's now the the women's coach up at Western, he scores the uh, the fourth goal for SPU. So now we're down five four and seconds to go. And Jason Dunn, who I just mentioned is over on the right side and he just sends they're counting down the scoreboard clock you know in college soccer you mm-hmm. actually have the clock out there and dunn just sends this hard blast into the box right into the crease and it just caroms off a defender running back towards his own goal goes in the net as the clock expires five five wow. and then it goes multiple like we go another couple scoreless overtimes. Then we go to a shootout that goes to, I want to say, about 10 rounds. But we, but Seattle Pacific knocks off Florida Tech. Uh, Hahnemann's back for the final. We win the final 1-0 over Southern Connecticut. And that, to me, was the most uh, indelible memory that I can think of. I remembered when Dunn, after, he, after the ball goes in the net, he comes running by the bench, and he's just... He's yelling something at the the guys on the bench, and I asked him after game, and I said, "What what are you yelling at? I mean, it's more than just." <laughs> and he says, "I said that's why you never give up." And so that is, um, it's a lesson. It's a it's just a moment. And if you're there, and there's not too many people in Seattle like, other than the players that mm-hmm. can say they were there to watch that game, probably the parents. Um, but it's just a fantastic example of a of a great game uh, played at a high level um, and exhibiting again. Seattle Pacific teams are pretty much Seattle or Washington based, and so you felt proud for your community. Um, just any number, you just felt proud of of soccer, and uh, that is the the ultimate game I've ever seen. Um, I'm trying to think. There's a lot of ones. There's a lot of uh, moments during games for MLS, but mm-hmm. uh, as for a, a, a game that that Seattle Pacific Florida Tech game yeah. stands out. Yeah, that's incredible, and it kind of it it is shows that the Seattle soccer culture isn't limited to a pro team. It's not limited to the the various Sounders teams that have been there. There's soccer everywhere in Seattle, and you've mentioned so many different memories and times and teams and all these things that have happened. What is it about Seattle? Uh, occasionally the Northwest as a whole, but what is it about Seattle and soccer that is just so connected? Well, um, uh, someone uh, in, the, in the last 
few years, what I've been trying to do is is uh, preserve the history as much as possible. Um, because we, uh, what prompt me, prompted me to do this was uh, a few years back, uh, we lost a, a great member of the soccer community, Mike Ryan. And for those who don't know Mike, he had coached uh, a bunch of high school teams, club teams, both boys and men's. But he also was the uh, coach of the University of Washington, and he, uh, men. And then he was the first women's national team coach for the United States. Uh, so... M- when Mike passed away, and I had interviewed him uh, a couple times uh, before his his passing, um, I thought, you know, there's a whole generation of Mikes out there, his contemporaries, and I want to get the history before it, it fades away. As I was interviewing uh, a couple people in particular, I won't mention their names here now, but there were two things that, that stood out. One of them... Uh, one one gentleman said to me, uh, you know, I said, what, what, how was it getting through all the fits and starts and when the game was really bleak, uh, when there, you know, no one was watching, uh, there were a lot of people playing, and he, and he said, uh, well, one time Jackie Charlton, a member of the 66 World Cup team, was over here doing some camps in Seattle, and I think it was during a downtime. It, there, it was probably when there wasn't a, a Sounders team. And this gentleman asked Jackie, he says, you know, should we, you know, is the sport going to make it here? And Jackie Charlton said, hey, you know, the businesses, they're going to come and go. You never have to worry about the game of soccer because it is, it's part of us. It will always, um, it'll always hold strong. It'll always be there to go back to, which has proven to be the case. Mm-hmm. The other story or 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 uh, remark that that sticks with me is uh i think i was asking about the formative days of youth soccer here which they just celebrated their 50th year of having uh, washington youth soccer in the state and um uh, uh, pam koppel is is the name she was uh, once the president of washington youth soccer but she said the thing that is remarkable and that people from other states, when they see me at conventions, me being Pam, uh, they say what you have done uh, is create a love for the game. doesn't matter if the players were, were good, if they reached the national team, or they just played rec level and then, and then we're done with it, or maybe now they're coaching their kids. But they, you can tell that they love the game Whoever the coaches were that they played for, whatever the administrators, the parents, their teammates, there was this common bond that they loved the game. And I think that is a lot of our uh, our roots here uh, come from Canada. Uh, they, they took a lot of the Washington State youth soccer uh, rules and regs and mission and so on from the the BC people. So I think... You know, we we owe that we owe a lot of thanks to uh, British Columbia, and I think, and I'm sure the Canadians shared it with uh, Oregon as well. And I think somehow that is part of our DNA. There's something about this corner of the continent that has an appreciation for the game. I'm not saying that Southern California and the Northeast mm-hmm. doesn't. I know they do, but there that is something that we seem to hold together on. Uh, there's a history, there's a love, um, and as a celebration of the game week in, week out. 
yeah, as, as, as much passion as there is in other parts of the country, there's just something different about mm-hmm. soccer in Seattle and the Northwest because it's just clear to people talk about it all the time when they come here for the first time and see a game and be around the team, be around the fans. It's just different, I think. It is. I, that's why I enjoy going to Vancouver and Portland mm-hmm. so much, and uh, they're all a little bit different. I can remember back in the day, Vancouver had the most boisterous fans, mm-hmm. um, and I would say uh, Seattle next and not so much Portland. Portland's uh, Portland's culture, uh, you know, it's, it's grounded in 75 and the big sellouts they had in, uh, toward the end of their first year. Um, but they didn't really start sustaining and creating this supporters culture until they came into the USL, I want to say 2001 or so. Mm. Um, and that, I think, they're driving, uh, they're driving the bus on the supporter culture. All, uh, all due respect to uh, Southsiders up in uh, Vancouver, to the ECS. But, I mean, you know, you got to give, uh, give credit to Timber's Army. Um, some of their chairs are a little blue, but they do uh, create an atmosphere that, that's unique to them. Uh, I would say up here in Seattle, it's, uh, it's just different. Um, but it, uh, Portland is special. They're all special in their own way. I'm kind of waiting for Vancouver mm. to, to take off and regain that. Uh, you know, when they used to fill Empire Stadium with about 27, 28,000 people. So I'm hoping that they will take it up still another notch here at, at some point. They certainly have the, the capacity to do, do so. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks again, Frank, for being on here. I really appreciate it. Um, these are some great stories. Where can fans find you? I know you're on Twitter, right? Uh, yes, I'm on uh, Twitter at uh, strange handle of Frank M. Sounders. And uh, I write, write occasionally for Sounder at Heart. I've got my own blog at frankmcdonald.net. Um, and then I chime in wherever I can uh, in addition to that. But I also would say, uh, just a little plug mm-hmm. for our, our uh, fledgling nonprofit, which is the Washington State Legends of Soccer, which uh, is a group of, uh, of uh, soccer uh, uh, personalities that many of us would be familiar with. But we have uh, started a group that is... Uh, um, driven to preserve and celebrate the history of soccer in our state and we're just getting going but if you have a if you're listening to this and you have a, a grandparent who has a lot of soccer clippings or soccer mm-hmm. memories uh please consider us a receptacle for that and don't go pitching it in the dumpster we, we've already reclaimed a lot of film and photographs and stories and uh, we think everybody's got a story to tell and we'd like to preserve that to tell future generations Definitely. I'll put a link to that um, in the show notes as well. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks, Frank. I'm Spencer Davis, and thanks for listening to Episode 3 of Sound Stories, a Seattle soccer podcast from 710 ESPN Seattle. To be sure not to miss future episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at at 710 ESPN Seattle. And don't miss any of our Seattle Sounders coverage on 710sports.com.